Welcome, welcome. This is Swimming in the Void. I'm your host, Matthew Barber. And I'm Hyunsu Moon. We're two filmmakers and former evangelicals having conversations about the taboo, psychedelics, and spirituality and our journey into the void of life. Sometimes this is just Moon and I talking about our shit. Other times we invite a special guest or two to dive further into a specific topic. This week we have Orpheus Black. He's going to be here discussing submission, dominance, kink coaching, Buddhism. We also dive into depictions of race in film and TV and much more. As I mentioned in the first episode, the editing is going to change a little more. Like halfway through, I stopped editing it and stopped getting so anal about like how many times we say you know. We should do a drinking game. We should have everyone do a drinking game every time we say you know. Maybe maybe uh, one episode will we'll have a drinking game episode <laughs> what if we just did an episode where it's all just every time we say you know it's just you know for two hours yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah i don't know that's this guy I, I mean i say it subconsciously so i because mm. also saying you know and likes are fillers you know uh <laughs> there you go right yeah there. just like that Take but a shot. I, I think that shot. was shot but i think that was a that was a uh a, a proper way to say you know because i said something and i am saying hey yeah you know just like that if you're not drunk by the end of this pot episode you're, you're doing it wrong <laughs> <laughs> I, I already i already finished the uh, lefroy that's slow down so, that's good, some yeah. good lefroy oh, um uh yeah so uh i mean at some point we probably we do have to find like a like our thing you know like what what we discussed like what are you up to this week um so we haven't found that thing yet but well i mean we can talk about the fact that uh, uh i just uh had my last day at work you did have your last day at work yeah but we should probably save that for episode four really <laughs> i guess i guess because we're gonna be way out of order because we we're re recording all we're recording for like the intro for three episodes at once right along with our fourth episode tonight. so should i pretend that this was a week ago i don't know i mean that's the thing i think we'll catch up we'll, we'll figure out something okay yeah okay let's see let's see what happens in episode three so uh all right all um right. i we don't know how often we'll put these out but please subscribe wherever you get your podcast like us write a review send us an email at swimming in the void podcast at gmail.com follow us on twitter and instagram swimming in the void and swimming in the void.com all right on to the show is it time yeah, yeah. I'm, we're still working out how the structure is going to work. So, like, what what I'd like to do is just start off with like a quick bio that I, I um, cut and pasted from your from your website, um, and then I have a couple questions I'd love to start off with, and we can just go from there. Yes, sir. All right. Um, all right. Uh, today we're welcoming. We're, no, let me start over again. Uh, today we're welcoming our first guest, Orpheus Black. He is part spiritual therapist, part bedroom sorcerer, and all badass. Orphe Orpheus, ah, god damn, this is going to be in it. We're going to keep this in because this is part of the process. Orpheus is a Los Angeles-based public speaker, teacher, thought leader, and somatic visionary who specializes in the application of ancient wisdom in modern-day settings. Through a balanced integration of Afro-Buddhism, psychosensuality, and Taoist teachings, his lessons are sought out internationally. His classes cover a range of sensual topics, including role-playing, dominance, climax control, shibari, and the elegant technique known as black tie bondage. Let's welcome to the show, Orpheus Black. Welcome, Orpheus. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so honored to be your first guest, man. 
I know it's exciting. This is this is all new, so feel free to stretch and break the walls and just rip mm. pictures off. Just do whatever you want. Who fucking cares? This I like is. It. I like it. Mm, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. <laughs> and so I, I know. I mean, I've known of you for a while because um, you keep sort of bouncing in and out of my consciousness and different shows I've seen you a part of. But Moon is 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 new to who you are. So how uh, is there anything you want to add to that that bio? Anything that you want to change? Who, do, who would you say you are? Who would I say I am? That's a great existential conversation. <laughs> who am I? Cut to two hours uh, later. You know what? I, I'm a person who's learning how to become the most authentic version of himself that I can be. That's really it. You know, I, I really want to just break free of all the things that are repressing me, all the things that hold me back, all the indoctrination, so I can sh- make the choices for myself of who I am, what I want, where I'm going, what my future looks like, how to love, how to be loved, really is my goal of my existence. And along the way, I hope to maybe meet some people who will go along for the ride. That's really it. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, where you're from and your upbringing? And, you know, to me, like, um, your first kind of... Uh, ideas as a child of the world right you have this as a child you there's a narrative whether you're fed it or you gain it somehow you know for me when i was growing up i was told hey in in the world there's god you love god and then your parents and that that, that's the order but no matter what god before everything you know so uh i would love to just hear your kind of i guess narrative of yeah, like what kind of background did you have and, you know, spirituality-wise, like what that was like? Thank you. I really appreciate you uh, asking that. My upbringing was diverse. Um, I was raised in Venice Beach, California, but I came up during the height of the crack epidemic. So on one hand, we had gangs, drugs, death, murder. Um, We were one of the few cities that had uh, FBI task units traveling it on a regular basis. So not just LAPD, but uh, FBI's law enforcement in that space. And uh, so when you look at the the background of violence in gangs and this, that, and the other, the only real safe harbor I had was to go onto the boardwalk. Mm. And at that time, I got to meet Hare Krishnas. I got to meet Buddhists. I got to meet Christians and evangelicals and street performers and carnies and homeless. And it was a hodgepodge of unique personalities who were just trying to eke out an existence in that space. And, you know, they really gave me an opportunity to play in the space of who am I? What am I choosing for myself? And I remember they used to do the Hare Krishna festivals down there. And um, all the kids would come out and, you know, cause they had all the candy for the kids and they had the kind of carnival thing and games and we'd all sing and play and all that stuff. And I remember sitting down with one young Hare Krishna. And the one thing he said to me is just be the best you, you can be. Hmm. Right. And that really changed a lot for me. Um, my I, mean, parents, how, I mean, how do you, un- how do you unpack that? Cause I mean, you, that sentence right there, that's, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Yeah, there, it's so it so is. And, and, you know, back then you're, you're talking about, you know, the last vestiges of hippies and, you know, free love and, you know, spirituality and, and, and mind altering substances were were kind of this 
confluence in this environment. And it was really important to me to have that contrast between that and the hardened street culture that I had to walk through mm. to get home, mm. right? To me, both taught me something because in that environment, I knew no, no one who had a father at home, right? Mm. So this idea of the nuclear family didn't exist for me. So there was no, you have to have a mother, you have to have a father, you have to have two kids, you have to have the white picket fence. That framework wasn't there for me. So in the what same was way- your, I'm sorry, what was your fra- uh, family makeup in, in that regard? Um, well, my mother, it, it was the uh, backbone of our space, but she had her issues too, because yeah. everybody was caught up in it some way. I lived in a drug house, you know what I'm saying, where where my father sold drugs out of the place. And, you know, I woke up to machine guns in my face at 10 years old, you know, drug out of a house and, you know, by the police. And that was life for me. And I had a father who was in and out who recently passed, um, who was just the epitome of, of, of a drug addict. He, all the drugs, not <laughs> just one, he did all the drugs, mm-hmm. right? But, but in that, I realized the, the void that he created was also space that he made for me to kind of invent what family looks like. For me, that yeah. was a very important thing. Also, my grandfather, who was my best friend at the time, he was a Buddhist. Huh. His uh, father was a Buddhist. Uh, my grandmother's brother is a Buddhist. And so for me, I always had these Hare Krishnas, Buddhists, and then we had books on Hinduism in my house because my mother, uh, again, she came out of hippie culture. And so all these influences really brought me into a space where I was able to kind of shirk being a Baptist really easy. So so is that what your, your mom raised you in was Baptist? My grandmother raised me to be a Baptist. <laughs> it's never your parents. It's always your grandparents, right? In black households, you know, there's like they come and get you or you spend the night and it's going to be all fun, but you got to get up and go to church in the morning. And for me, it, it was really easy to kind of just step out of that and make that choice mm-hmm. for me that this is not my, my path. How did you discover kink? How did I discover kink? Man, uh, is dawn and earshot. <laughs> so one of my partners... Uh, I was poly for with a group of people for five years. So me, my wife and my current roommate were in a poly relationship in a blended family. And she left us for a dom. And I was like, what the hell is a dom? I had no idea what a dom was. And like, I didn't know what it meant. Dominic. I thought it meant Dominic or, you know, or <laughs> some guys, some guy's nickname, right? You're going, do- going Domino's? Order me some cheese exactly. pizza. Exactly. <laughs> when, when Domino shows up and kicking his butt. Uh, <laughs> so for me, I thought it was a person that she left me for. Really, it was an archetype that she was looking for that I wasn't fulfilling in the way that she needed to. And uh, when their thing kind of dropped away, um, what I did, what she did was came back and said, Hey, you, I want to show you this lifestyle. I want to show you this thing. I want to introduce you to it. And she brought me into a space club dungeon. Uh, it's at club blue. Now it was a goth industrial club. I had no idea what goth was. I had no idea what industrial was. I had no idea what kink was. This is all just new space for me. I love, but I right. do love, I do love, like you knew what poly was. You were in a polyamorous. You know what poly was either. Oh, you just were doing it. We were just doing it. There was no, when I, when we got into it, there were no poly groups. There was no thing on the internet. We didn't, internet wasn't really a thing. You had to go to a a place to get it. Um, You know, there was nothing that we, we had nothing. All we knew was the person I was dating, I was in love with her. The other person that I met, I was in love with her. 
And I didn't want to be without each either of them. And I think what really allowed me to do that uh, to your uh, credit in the story is the fact that I didn't have this this upbringing where, you know, you have to have a wife and you have to have a husband and that's it. Because I think one of the things I would love to do with this with this podcast is to open the curtain for for a lot of people who don't understand these 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 worlds and mm-hmm. shed light on them because a lot of times they're just people being people. There's people doing people things. You know, there's nothing weird or it's it's an expression of of humanity. But the more m- mystical we make it, or the more removed, and to make it the other and push it away and make it. And it's, shove it into these corners, it, it seems scary and satanic. And I don't know, are they, are they sacrificing babies in there? Oh my mm-hmm. God. So what are some common mistakes that people make entering the kink community for the first time? That um, submission is about weakness. Submission is the most natural expression of humanity that you're ever going to find. It is not about being devoid of power. It's not about being subservient. It's not about being um, a doormat to some extent, really what we're talking about when we're being submissive is you yielding to your own wants, needs, and desires, completely giving yourself over to what you want. That's it. It has nothing else to do with anything else, right? Mm -hmm. And so what you're saying is I'm going to get out of my own way and have this experience. It's okay. There's so many people who go into, let's say, let's say you start eating a burger and you're like, oh, it's got so many calories in it. And you take another bite. It's like, oh, it's going to get so fat. It's like you're beating yourself up about something you're doing right now. You're whole, you're not having the true experience. Allow yeah. yourself to be completely present in the moment. That is submission. Surrender to the thing right now. No resistance. Mm-hmm. The cessation of resistance. Right. There's a lot of people who have sex and they can't show up in the moment because they're holding on to some sort of societal indoctrination or something the church said or something this. So now they're engaged and he still can't allow themselves to be in the moment to truly have the experience. Both sides of BDSM require submission. Hmm. Doesn't matter if you're the dominant, doesn't matter if you're the, the sub, both require submission. So what I think that's major ones. Go ahead. Well, what was what would you say was um, your experience of understanding that about submission? Like, did you have a hard time understanding uh, this idea of submission not being weakness? Like, can you just tell us a little bit about like what that was like for you? Yeah, there. I mean, let's just say it, it, it manifests itself. And then it reinforces itself and it reinforces itself and it comes up and it comes up. And if you don't give yourself over to it, it's going to stick in your craw. I'll give you an example. I remember sitting at my home in in Sherman Oaks and um, I was very unhappy. I have three wives that married at the same on the same day. One was awarded like Internet Best Body three years in a row. I have one of the most adorable women who's in, she's super intelligent. I got another person who's, a, you know, used to be an actress and belly dancer and all this other stuff. I am living the life, but I'm not happy. And uh, one of my subs comes over and says, why are you not happy? I said, I don't know. I'm not getting what I need. He said, if you're not getting, if you're not happy, it's because you're not telling us what you need and then not enjoying it when you receive it. You're so worried about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing that you can't be right here feeling what's happening. 
allowing yourself to enjoy what you're having because you're already thinking about the next thing, mm-hmm. right? Tell me what you want. Allow me to give it to you. And now you let go and enjoy it. That's the fucking human condition though, right? Uh, right? We're always, we're either remembering how it was so great in the past. I'm like, if I could just recapture that moment or someday when I get to that place in the future, it's going to be so great. And you miss right now. And that's such a hard practice. It's such a hard practice because your, your brain is constantly, our bodies are constantly bouncing between these two poles, like past future, past, future, past, future. You know, the easiest way, the easiest way to solve that, if a person says, you know, I'm trying to, you know, capture us in the past is because you didn't appreciate it when it happened. That's the problem. If you were totally in the moment, you could have had it, enjoyed it, been there, did that, and then move on happily because you completely satiated yourself in the moment. But we don't give ourselves over to the moment. Why, why do you think that's such a struggle for, for most, for most humans? You know, it's it's in Buddhism they would say it's uh, too many mind. You, you you just got too many things running through your head. You're trying to do too many things. It's a before enlightenment chop wood. After enlightenment chop wood. Like you're supposed to be doing the thing that you're supposed to be doing. If you're gonna eat dinner, eat dinner. Don't eat dinner. Have a phone in your hand. Have two conversations going on over here because you missed the meal. And so for me, one of the things I like to say is I I did this thing with these Oreo cookies. I love Oreo cookies. I I absolutely love them. And I'm watching a movie and I'm just rifling through these things. And before you know it, I get down to the last three cookies. And now I want to open it up. I want to look at it. I want to, you know, eat the middle out. I'm like, you know, let me get some milk. Let me really dunk the last. But why didn't I start like that? Probably wouldn't have ate a whole pack if I sat there enjoying it because I'm going through this pack trying to have an experience. And they're like, dude, no experience, no experience. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. I get to the last two and I only got to enjoy two cookies out of a pack of cookies. Hmm. Right. That's how most people's lives work. Uh, To that point, isn't there something to be said about indulgence and why we have indulgence? Because things are off limits, right? And when you when certain things are off limits or taboo or not allowed, for instance, like Oreo cookies, as you as a kid and growing up, you, you they're like, well, you're not supposed to sit and uh, have a whole box of cookies. I mean, that's that's just no that's just no good. Or things like uh, sex, right? They are hidden away from us uh, when we're growing up. I mean, isn't there something to be said about why we have those moments of indulgence like you were doing, you know, just sitting and just like the way you were eating it, it sounds like you were describing something where it wasn't necessarily about the tasting and the experience of it, but it's more about the idea that I could have all of this. You know, and I and I and I wonder if there's something to be said about something that happens even for us, like you were saying, with uh, having three different wives who were like the and and having basically it's to a certain extent that's that sounds like a similar kind of thing where like you shouldn't have been able to complain about because you had everything you wanted, but you weren't there to experience each moment but it was more about almost like the volume of it uh yeah would you th- would you say that's like a fair comparison you know what i i would say that on some level first of all i think it's a great question but i think it's a more nuanced conversation because what we do as human beings is we amass things that we think will bring us enjoyment 
Right. That's the first right. thing we do. We get a little of this and a little of that, and we have all ourselves around, and then we don't know how to enjoy it, and then we don't know if we will allow ourselves to enjoy it, and it just sits there. Right. And then we get divided because we experience some shame around having too much or too often, or there's other people who don't have, and I feel guilty about that. We cannot mm-hmm. be completely present in the moment. So that's why I think that we see so much uh, meditation coming out because people want to be present with their desires. They mm-hmm. want to be present with their wants. They want to be present with their need. But for some reason, they're not able to show up. They're divided. They're held mm-hmm. back. This is why submission is such an integral part of our human development, allowing ourselves to just let go of whatever is holding you back. Just let go. And stop holding on to whatever's keeping you down. That's all submission is. I'll give you an expression, uh, an uh, idea of how that manifests. You ever been in an argument and you're like, you know what? Forget this. I'm done with the conversation. I'm out. You let go of the. You let go. But you're still holding on to the feelings inside. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. A lot of people do that with church and shame. They let go. They walked away from church, but they're still holding on to all the rights, all the rituals, all the shame, all the guilt. But you walked out. You're not there anymore. Why is this? Why does it still have a hold on you? You know, what's interesting is like because I think that's so true. And one of the things that I've been struggling with in my own life is moving things from my head into my body. Mm -hmm. And I've been discovering the importance of movement and this idea of somatic learning because I've done all the reading I've done years of talk therapy and that voice the inner voice is still there that shame voice is still there um, I've I've turned the volume down greatly on it there was something that you said that I want to highlight there's a there's a magic phrase in this that a lot of people kind of uh, let go and they say my mind my body as if they're not the same thing as if you are not your body What I find is when people say my body, I find that at a very young age, uh, they had to start protecting their bodies from other people. Mm. They were either bullied or pressured. Uh, They were either uh, touched in a way that they didn't feel comfortable with. Abused. Abused, whatever it is. Soon as they say my body, and I'm like, that demarks, that's a demarcation point of where you've been in charge of taking care of this vessel that you're in. It's a way of kind of avoiding trauma. So it didn't happen to me. It happened to my body. You're not punching me. You're punching my body. So we have dissociation. So one of the things that we have to do is find integration before we can start any somatic learning. Your mind, your body have to come together and become one thing. You have to have a reintegration ritual You can have a reintegration therapy. You can do whatever you need to do to bring those two things back together. The other thing is my mind. In the same way you have to protect your body, most times people who say my mind often feel that their mind is being exploited. They've had thought, you know, things taken from them, intellectual things taken from them, or they feel like they've been brainwashed or conditioned in some way, and now they have to protect it. So we have to really think about the language that we use because it's an indicator of some of the struggles that we're having. Everybody wants to tell you how to help them. We just don't listen. And so when I hear boom, I'm like, this is, we need some help around body, mind, scarcity, right? Abuse, trauma, so on, so on, so forth. 
This is where somatic learning begins to get, before you even go to that, you have to start with this alignment process. Yeah. I, th I think that's part of the reason why I was, I mean, I, I've dipped my toe a little bit into the kink world and gone to a couple of munches. I went to a Dom once just to see what it was like. But I, I think part of my process is in my own way, trying to in, like integrate my body back into myself, into my being. And I'm, I think I'm drawn to the, that lifestyle a little bit just because you so have to be connected to your body in order to experience this stuff. And evangelical Christianity in particular has done a really good job, good in quotes, of making the body a, a thing that you have to put into submission, that its desires are bad. That you have to put it in service to your soul and your and your mind first. Your body, like all its desires, are very base, and it, it takes a long time to deconstruct it and to work through that and not feel shame towards just basic. You know, I think I, I am a firm believer that much of the trauma that men do towards women is because of this repression, and they don't know how to deal with this these feelings inside them because they've been taught where to put this energy. And, and remember, it's not the, the it's not about submission. It's about subordination of the body. Hmm. You subordination, hmm. you need to make it kowtow. You need to make it bend down. You need to oppress your body, there you, go. you know, in order to co-opt it into the service of the mind. And that is not true. You, you know, in Buddhism, I'm sorry, in Taoism, we talk about uh, whatever arises of itself is true and real in the moment. That is what we call nature. That's also what we call Buddha nature too. That which arises of itself is real and true in the moment. And so you can think of things like hunger. Hunger comes up of itself. Thirst comes up of itself, but also the need to connect with another human body arises of itself, right? I can't control that. I'm not supposed to control that. No animal on this planet controls that. The only thing that we are in control of is how we satiate those things. They will be satiated. It's about how we satiate those things. So for me, when you look at it like that, it's like, huh, okay. So then what is sex? Sex is the way we satiate that which arises of itself. And it could be mm. anything. It could be food. It could be drink. It could be eating. It could be fucking. I hope it's okay to use that mm. language on here. Use it. But we have to expand our definition of sex as well as our idea of sexuality in order to really suit the people that are coming into these spiritual realms with us. So maybe I give you different options to engage in satiating desire. Mm. Maybe I give you different ways of engaging with your hunger and satiating your hungers, your thirst, your cravings, your, your things. But I'm not gonna tell you to avoid them, to tap them down because they're gonna drive you crazy. And we know that those desires get sublimated. So can you, uh, I mean, maybe this is a good time to go back a little bit. So you grew up, grew up in Venice Beach, you uh, hear from this Hare Krishna uh, about being the best you can be. You have grandparents who teach you Buddhism. Now, how would you describe your puberty years and discovery of sex? You have to close Buddha's ears on that one. <laughs> <laughs> See no evil. <laughs> right? <laughs> Look, I, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say it like this. I was wild. We used to have a thing called a fuck fest at my house. We would ditch. And everybody who ditched would go in the room. We'd all be like, we know what we're here to do. 
pull the mattresses on the floor and there'd be four, five, six, seven, ten people in there having sex. You know, I was always open. How to old were you? 13, 14. Good God. Wow. <laughs> Wait, so what you so you started having sex pretty early. Uh, yeah, 13, 14. 13, okay. My 13-year-old mind just went. <laughs> you could do that at 13? Oh my god. So, I mean, how did you even begin to know how to do that? You know what I mean? Like, I, like, what is, what was the genesis Everybody of knows that? how to do that. It's not driving a car. They all know how to do it. <laughs> moon, you moon, do we, need, we, we need to rewind, Moon. You know, you have a kid. How did that happen? <laughs> Here's the thing. We all know how to do it. It's whether you allow yourself to do it. Mm-hmm. And will you allow yourself to do it well? And what is, and to what extent are you trying to do? I mean, this is, explore, I have to explore myself via the conduit of other people. And in many ways, we have to think about the, that sex in some ways is the way with which we also uh, understand ourselves, explore ourselves via a conduit of another human being, right? I can't take my hand and have the same experience that I would have with a partner. Mm. I'm learning more about myself in the morning. I'm feeling myself. I feel me because I'm in contact with another human being. Mm. To me, when people are stripped of that, they're stripped of a solid knowledge, another experiential narrative of who they are. Because without me touching them, I can't feel me. I don't know what my skin feels like until someone comes into contact with it. Mm. And so for me, the, the exploration of sex at that age was trying to explore another level of who I was. It was calling to me and I needed to meet it. And so to me, I don't think that people should be stripped of it, but they should be guided and they should have a better understanding of what the consequences are, how to do it safely, you know, and, and best operating practices. Because when you start skirting the rules and trying to get it in, you make mistakes because you don't know, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to, you know, and you don't, pr- you don't prepare you don't have condoms on you. You don't know how to have a consent conversation. You don't know how to listen to the other person's body. You don't know how to listen to your body. Mm-hmm. You don't know what's too aggressive or how to manage your energies. Yeah. It, right? beca- it basically becomes a, a, a race to like, you know, just check this box off. Like, oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's not, and that's not, and try to check that box off before anybody finds out about it, right? Because if your Christian mom or your Christian dad or whoever finds out about it, you're going to be sitting in, in the hell seat in church or whatever it is, or the shame module, whatever they've cooked up for you. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it was really an opportunity for me to learn myself via other people and to learn how to have that consent conversation and learn how to have a better understanding of what I was looking for, what I was asking for. Because a lot of people, what they're asking for, what they're looking for, don't add up. That's often how they find themselves in kink. So how would you coach someone if they, you know, come into you like, I don't even know what I'm asking for. What's the process? Well, you know, one of the things I have people do is a desire diary. And what's so, and it's, I mean, to tell you right off the bat, when I give it to people, I don't expect them to fill it all out. I, I expect them to be frustrated. I expect for resistance to come out. And that's what we talk about. Because mm-hmm. I can tell you when you say, when I say, what do you want? Most people say, I don't know what I want. Well, that's where the works happen. Tell me where the resistance comes up, right? Or I give them a mantra and I say, uh, here's how we're going to frame you asking for what you desire. I want you to, because it brings me pleasure, fill in the blanks. How many people can answer that? How many people will honestly and authentically put out that thing? 
But you might put it out there too, but, but there still might be that internal voice of like, I don't, it, it's, it's difficult to ask sometimes for what you want and, and, and truly receive it. That's the, that's the next step. But see, that's the thing that I'm waiting to hear. That's where the work is. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, if if I'm imagining myself filling it out, yeah, I mean, uh, the first thing that I think is, like, I'm going to be judged. I don't want to be judged. I don't want to feel shame. Because I I have judgmental thoughts about my own desires already, Mm -hmm. you know, which is why I don't talk about it. I don't uh, expose it to the world, and you're basically asking me to expose it to you. Exactly. Yeah. So and the, yeah. the thing is not what you want, it's the reason why you think you shouldn't have it or why you think you shouldn't talk about it. Mm. That's the work. Mm. Right? That's where I come into it. And so it's like I'm going to go judged by who? Who do you want to be? Who do you think is going to judge you? Me or are you judging you? Right? And then it comes down to uh what was the other component you said um uh shame? Yeah, shame. I'd be like define it. What's mm. your definition of shame? Huh. I guess I would define shame as, uh, I don't know, maybe this feeling of, uh, it's, it's a feeling of me, uh, a judgment, uh, like I'm a bad person. So you're a bad person for wanting something? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Well, did you hear what you just said? You're a bad yeah, yeah, person. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I, I so guess it's not the, about you shame. Know, yeah. It's not about shame. It's about this mm-hmm. idea that you think desire makes you a bad person. Well, it's like a, um, uh, there's, it's almost like a, <laughs> come, uh, back, come back, yeah. come back, come back. Just deal with, just deal with what we're talking about. No, no, no. Well, well I'm, I'm just saying, I'm saying it's, it's also like a wor- <laughs> word, worthiness. It's a, it's a feeling of like, I'm worthless. That's the, I would say that that's how it, I would extrapolate, uh, shame. Yeah. And this yeah. is, and just to give you an idea, this is where I sit back and I go, hmm, with my little, <laughs> 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 I start right. So yeah. now there's worthlessness that, you know, there's, you know what I mean? Because right. to be honest with you, most people who talk about shame, they're using it as a catch-all. Mm. Yeah. Right. And when I ask them to define it, they're like, oh, there's all these other things that are going up under this. And it's like, oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a bad person. Oh, I mean, it, it's worthlessness. And then they start letting me know where all the work is. And that's how we get to the work and see how we leave the desire behind. Doesn't right. that desire doesn't matter. I just mm. need to know the resistance is coming up and then help you develop a sense of submission around saying, you know what? It's OK. Mm. I'm just going to let go of that. I don't need it. It doesn't serve me. You, you've, you've spoken a lot. I mean, you've mentioned like the uh, one buzzword that keeps po- popping up is authenticity. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of work that I've been doing over the last year is aligning my inner voice and my outer voice. Because I've, I've realized that all my feelings of inauthenticity, when I don't feel authentic, it's really when what I'm saying on the inside is not being reflected on the outside and I feel disingenuous or I feel like that's when the shame comes up because I have this inner voice that's uh, different than what's, what's on the outside. Would you, would you be willing to share a little bit of your inner voice and that process of finding your authentic inner voice? There's a, there's a word uh, associated with an Egyptian god called hu. You, you, you experience it in uh, Allahu. We still keep it in that uh, in the Arabic saying is also comes up in uh, Hebrew where we still keep who. And really what it means is the divine utterance. It's the power and the emotion that goes along with the words. The words are just the vehicles that carry your emotions. Mm. 
It's what carries that energy. It's what carries your intent. And so for me, um, what I'm always striving to do when I'm being authentic is that my feelings, my emotions, and my intentions are in line with the words that are carrying them. That's really what I'm looking for. Because words have double entendre and multiple meanings and sometimes they're Freudian and all these other things. But what I can control is the feeling that I'm trying to convey to you. That's why sometimes music means so much because that person is putting so much feeling through six strings and a piece of wood and you feel every word, although nothing was said, right? And so I'm trying to play this instrument in a way that helps you understand what I mean, the feeling. And that's where I think authenticity starts. How do I make you feel the, what I'm saying? What, what are some of your practices, your daily practices to, <laughs> to, to, to help with that? Um, it's funny because I get the, I get this question all the time. I like to say my practice is Zen, but my process is every day, hmm. right? Every day trying to speak from that place. And when I find and when I find that uh, they're not congruent, I go back and check myself and see why they're not congruent. Was it was I not being totally present? Was I just trying to speak in shorthand? Am I not trying to have a deep and meaningful connection? Like I have to really examine my motives and check myself. And if I really feel like I was misleading and I was trying to mislead this person, um, if I have some integrity, I'll go back and talk to them and say, hey, you know what? What I said earlier wasn't really what I was trying to say. Can I have an opportunity to talk to you again? And maybe we can straighten that out. Hmm. Right. So I always want to make sure I make amends, you know, for misleading a person because it's never my intention. And I hope they understand that, too. Hmm. But that integrity needs to come from deep and meaningful self-reflection. And I do it one day at a time every day. So practice is in right process every day, every day. Yeah, it's like I, I, I don't think I've I didn't realize. Um, well, maybe I, I mean, I realized, but I didn't put it into practice the like how much work it takes to really become authentic. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm no, I'm no, I'm not even saying I, I've reached that stage. I've just started the process. And I had this suit, this suit of Christianity and this way of being put upon me. And I left that. And then I just spent the last eight years just opening every door, opening every door with no structure, just opening things up, seeing what fit. And now I'm at a stage where I'm like, I want to put into practice, I want to sort of build something, build a structure for my life that works, that gives me the practice to get to the place where I feel authentic day in and day out. And I know, mm -hmm. that, and I know that's a daily thing. It's a daily thing. It's a journey. It's not, there's no magic button. And yet I feel like that's all we really want, especially in this society, is like, we just give me the magic button. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's how I stumbled into polyamory because I was I, I went through a I went through I went through a divorce and I interviewed a few people that were doing this thing. I'm like, oh, this, this you know monogamy didn't work for me, so let's try this thing. And it was a, it was a shit show. It was a mess. I mean, it, there's some there's beautiful moments, but I, I was just stumbling through. I didn't have my foundation set. So whenever my friends ask me, so what do you think about polyamory? I'm like, I, I, you can't base upon my experience because I was basically a, a freshman in, in college trying to do a PhD level course. And I was, just, <laughs> I was fucking overwhelmed. So I, I don't know. Well, you know what? You're, you're, you're in good company because uh, the, the battlefield of poly has slain many a warrior. <laughs> you know, but, but, but again, I've been poly 25 years. Okay. My wife is in there. 
And then my best friend uh, and my childhood sweetheart is on the other side, right? I have my beautiful partner right here. You know, I mean, I've been poly a long time, but I can tell you I've got it wrong more times than I got it right. The only difference between me and you is I kept going. We both come into this thing and you have to learn on the fly. There's no one that's going to mentor you. There's no one that's going to teach you because no one can help you be you. What What would you say you learned uh, from like, the, the times that it didn't work or yeah i have i have it i have this this question was how has failure set you up for later success how has failure set me up for later success you know when it comes to and specifically with poly um i had to make a decision like is this me or is this something i'm trying to do is it doing versus being right Am I a poly person or am I just trying to do, you know, a couple girls on this at the same time or in the same relationship? And what I realized is I've always been this person. I've never uh, since I discovered women, I've always had women around me and always been in relationships that were deep more than friendship, whether it was uh, sexual or not sexual or intimate or not intimate, whether it was friendly. I've always had this thing and I was always the, the hub of that thing. And so I'm like, yeah, this is me. And walking away from it is walking away from a facet of me. That was the first thing that I learned. And so I have to learn how to deal with the heartaches associated with being me. So a lot of people don't know what it's like to marry three women on the same day, be a successful porn star, have the world at your hands. I can go, I used to be able to stand on a stage, put my hand out in the audience and 12 30 women clawing to, to come up on stage and be flogged by me, right? And then one day it's all gone. Everything's gone. Why? Because you said one thing or did one thing and everything fell apart. Why does any relationship break, right? But this is the heartache associated with Polly because it doesn't just happen. You don't lose one girlfriend, you lose multiple girlfriends. You lose multiple connections simultaneously. And now who's going to be the person you turn to when the person you turn to is gone? It, it, it's horrible, but I realize this is who I am. And this is the heartache associated with being poly in the same way being there's heartache associated being gay or lesbian or queer or this. It's all different. It's all a different experience for them. And this is my cross to bear. That was the, the one of the biggest things I had to learn. Everybody looks at all the fun, all the sex and the fun and all this. But think about the heartache. Double your loss. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Is there, I mean, do you feel like part of it is when you're going against normative culture, whether it doesn't matter what your gender makeup, your sexual makeup, your partner makeup is, like when you're, when you're doing something that's against the, the normative behavior of society, you're going to have, you got to wrestle with that because you have to, take on this Norman Rockwell dream of the white picket fence and the kids and the, you know, 2.5. And most, I mean, most of those visions are like white people in, in the suburbs, right? Right. And I think this was my, sort of my experience with, you know, just a little briefly with Polly was being in that space of ha having to watch a partner marry someone else and realize, oh, I can't be that person. And I can't bring this person home to meet my family because, they don't. They wouldn't understand any of this stuff, and I felt so isolated. And I, I, I and I look back on all that. I'm like, I don't know if I'm a, a poly person. I do not know. Mm. It was definitely something I was trying on because I needed, like, I needed to know what that experience was like. And mm. even to this day, like, if I have friends who, are, who ask me about it, I'm like, I'm not. I'm. 
I will tell you the, the positive and the negative. I'll tell you my experience, but don't take my word for it because I know people who have been, been poly for 30 years and they're happy as fuck. And mm-hmm. I know people that have done open relationships are miserable. So mm-hmm. for me, it's like any relationship, any relationships, what you bring to it. Mm-hmm. I think I think one of the things that we have to realize is when we're defaulting to a behavior, right? When we say, like, I can't bring that person home, it's like, I could. They're not going to understand. They probably won't. But this is where I get to make my choices in the same way that, you know, a, a, a gay person has to bring that boyfriend home for the first time and introduce their, their partner to that, that thing. That's something that can't happen and they do it. Why in poly should I not be in the same space? It's like, again, queer, trans, we all have our cross to bear. And that's one of them. And here's the thing. I think oftentimes we're not we're confronted with this idea that we don't want our parents or our loved ones not to love us anymore. But if this is an authentic expression of myself, this is who I am, I want them to accept me for it. You don't have to know the details. You don't have to know what we do in our bedroom. You don't have to know any of that stuff. But you have to learn how to love me from this place and possibly embrace the relationship or the relationship style that I have. That's what's accepting. You can't just accept the parts that you are comfortable with Hmm. or do not accept me. That's phase two is most people are not wanting to be exiled or, or separated from. But to me, having a unique understanding of who loves you no matter what is more important than having the false ideas, not knowing who loves me to that extent. So my mother knows my wife. She knows uh, our partner. She's met Selena. She knows our partner, Jocelyn. She's met, uh, what you call it? She came to my wedding. My kids know all of them and all that because to me, it was more painful to stay restricted than it was to open up and blossom. Mm. You cannot grow under the pressure of conformity. How, how is being black in the king community? Let me say, what's your experience of being black in the king community? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's that's a whole show, buddy. Um, I, I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you this this thing. It's it's easier now. Uh, when I came into it, I was the black community, <laughs> so you know. And uh, and like I said, when I walked into the door the first time, I, I looked like a hip hopper in a goth club. And so we stood out. And then mm. when we went through and got the mentorship and we started on stage, we didn't start behind closed doors. We didn't start as partners. We started in public as performers. And uh, the first thing is, I don't want no nigga touching me. I don't want this, that her, my wife's butt is obscene. You know, she's large. Like the, look, look at the, you know, two monkeys over here having sex, you know, like I heard it all in that thing. But at that point in time, I was like, you know what? They're not going to run me off. They're not going to scare me off because the next person who comes here is going to need a safe space for them to be. And I'm going to be here to greet them when they walk in the door. And so for me, much of my career was trying to normalize the presence of black alternative sexuality to say that we do this. This is not some white thing. This is not some weird thing. This is an an expression of sexuality, expression of connection. And this is the way that my wife and I connect. And we want you to see that we do this too. So for me, it was really painful coming in. Uh, but now there's so many black people in this. It's, it's, uh, it's almost normal within uh, certain parameters, right? Mm-hmm. Poly is still a little weird for, for people, but uh, kink is a little more easy to deal with. 
I mean, but that that takes some. Uh, 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 I mean, s- some real grounding in your spirit to be able to sit in that space and hear those things and not feel invited or welcome, and to be like, I want to be the person welcoming the next group coming in. Well, that's normal. You know, I, I think it's normal for us because you know you're raised being the only black person in the room. You go to a par- a friend's party, you're the only black person in the room, and you still get the whispers, you still get the looks, and you're supposed to be in a friendly environment. You know, you go to a club, an upscale club or something, or, or go down to Malibu or you do a job, you're still usually the only one of few black people, if not the only black person there. But the thing is, is I just don't want to be scared off and I don't want to be forced out of a place. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my martial arts training is about conflict uh, resolution on every level. So if we want to talk about it, I'm, I have the vocabulary to be able to ex- talk to you. I have a Buddhist background for me to be able to put my own stuff down and really hold presence for you. But if you want to put your hands on me, too. I can help with that resolution too, you know, so I I have no problem with meeting a person on any level, but what was painful was for my partner to experience that because I can't protect her. And and as a man, it's very difficult not to be able to protect her and also to be able to say you showing up with me in this space has to be your choice. I can't make you do it. I can't force you to do it. And I understand if you don't want to do it. So really having to have those type of discussions where other people don't even think about having those discussions. Everybody's going to have to talk to their sub about that. Not too long ago, I was at a party and I was with my entire poly family. And this guy wants to, he said, hey, let me tell you a joke. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you the whole joke, but the premise was a, a transsexual who wanted to be hung like a black man. And he and he's like, woke up and he was by his neck. He told me that in the club. I'm like, why would you think that you want to tell me that in the club? At the end of the day, it was about jealousy and he was alone and, you know, he just wanted to ruin my night, you know, and I actually never saw him again because I, I really had a problem. I was so shocked that in a room full of alternative lifestyle people where trans people were in earshot and where black people, people of color in earshot, you told that joke. And right. so again, I still can't protect my partners from that. So the protector, the archetype within me that wants to say, I can protect you. I can't keep them out of earshot from when somebody drives by and goes, you know what I'm saying? They feel it just like I feel it. But when it happens in your, in your, pre, in your sexuality, when it manifests in your intimacy, it's, it's, it's even more vulnerable because it's a vulnerable spot. We're naked or we're nude or we're, we're open, we're receiving, we're in the space. And it, it's, it's a violent act at that point in time because it's hitting something very deep and personal. I mean, I can't, I don't think in even this, this amount of time you can go into the extent of how deep the racial divide goes. But I'll also leave you with this. I see more black people than we see Asian men. Moon, I mean, there's an opening there. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, it's, it's difficult. You know what I mean? You, you see a lot of Asian women because they're so fetishized in our community, mm-hmm. right? And if you're doing rope, they're like the the number one thing that you want to do rope bondage. Right. But Mm -hmm. where the Asian men fit, how does that sexuality manifest in kink and fetish and BDSM? And then who's going to be that Asian guy that says, I'm not going to get pushed out. I'm going to be here when another Asian guy walks in the door. I happen to be that person, but where's the Asian guy? Where's the Hindu guy? Where's the Sikh guy? Where's the Pakistani guy? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like for our community, it's got to happen. It's going to happen very slow. Yeah. But it's going to happen eventually. 
instead of being an archetypal society, what we are is a stereotypical society. And if your stereotype around sexuality has some kind of plus or boon that someone can buy into, then you're not going to get it. And and please, uh, Mr. Moon, don't let me talk about this subject without getting your opinion. Uh, To me, in mainstream media, most Asian men are not depicted having a sexuality. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I mean, at least in the media, uh, Asian men have been desexualized in general. And it's just, that's just the history of it. Uh, I know that there was a film, I forget what it was called, but it was a Jet Li movie with, uh, it was it was actually a, a a black pop star. I forget Aaliyah. her. Aaliyah. Yeah, and um, they did a test screening of that where Jet Li kisses her at the end, and Jet Li kissing her at the end tested more negatively during the test screenings, so they removed that. And yeah. so, I mean, that that's the kind of desexualization that Asian men kind of face. I mean, the same way I think uh, African-American men have been demonized throughout history of being like sexual aggressors, right? I mean, yeah. there have been so many kind of demonization when it comes to, I mean, yeah, you look at the beginning of like the Tulsa massacre, right? That was mm-hmm. based on this uh gossip or whatever saying oh yeah this this guy like raped her and blah 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 there's i think there's a pretty long history of that which is interesting in that there's almost like for black men it's demonized aggressors and mm-hmm. then asian men are desexualized beings without sexuality which i think mm-hmm. is kind of kind of interesting which i also wonder if it has to do with uh, colonization uh, power in a way because part of Asian fetish is about power, right? right? Power over Asian women. And I do think that for white culture to desexualize Asian men gives them power over their Asian women. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's how I sort of interpret that. I, I agree. And, and the, other, the other component in, in this piece is just kind of this idea that uh, both women are hypersexualized. Right. African American women and Asian women. In in yeah. fact, when the call for more and maybe uh, maybe Matt can talk about this when they're talking about we want to see more representation in movies, they're like, okay, let's bring all the Asian women in, let's bring the black women in, let's bring the what you call it, women in, right? And we're still gonna let white men date them all. Right. It's like when we, when we were talking about this representation, we were talking about across the board. We weren't talking about just bang our women. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. right? So, so it's, since it's, it's a perpetuation of the same colonial narrative just played right. out in this present right. day. So, like I say, the struggle for African-Americans and kink is just the one we just happen to be doing it right now. But some it's going to open up and it's going to be it's going to be a necessary thing for Asians, Filipinos, uh, Pacific Islander, whatever, whatever it is, you know, Pakistan, the every, somebody's got to be the, the bridge to stand there and say, here, let me help you over without that person. It doesn't happen. I was th- I just watched this movie, uh, Crip, Crip Camp on uh uh was it netflix no it was on hulu is that is that new documentary it's on netflix yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and michelle and barack obama uh, were producers on it but it's all about this the passing of the ada and this camp where these uh um uh, uh i'm i'm stumbling on i'm always like wait which word is it handicapped is that no it's disabled like no uh other abled um the point my point is like there was a quote at towards the end of the film that I thought was so powerful. Like, like, it doesn't matter what laws you pass if you don't change the hearts of the nation. 
It's something in that vein. I've been thinking about that all day. Like even if you look at the emancipation, they still found ways to like keep the oppression alive. Mm -hmm. And you're asking about the way we address it in films and like bringing representation in. There's always this balance of this is a business and they want to make the most money possible. And if people don't want to pay to see Jet Li kiss someone, they're going to be like, all right, well, uh, we can't force this because we want to make the money. So here we go. I'm just curious about how we push that culture forward. What do we do to push the culture forward to a point where we can say, no, fuck it. Jet Li can kiss whoever the fuck he wants. And this is not about just adding in more hot women of color. That's not what this is about. I think on some level we have to look at who's who's the person in the booth saying what they want to see and what they don't want to see when you test it. Right. If you got a room full of white men and white women uh, and this happens, it's like, OK, we don't want to see that. Well, again, how about we pull a bunch of Asian and blacks to see how that works? Or, you know, we get a really integrated room of people to really do the testing for this so we can get a mm. good unbiased thing. But what they're doing is they're saying supposedly the, the moviegoer is white male age, white female age, white child age. And so let's get a diverse population of that and let's set them in a the room and then let's let them watch the movie. As opposed to saying like, how about we make, we try and get the most money. Look at the Bridgertons. The Bridgertons was one of the most watched TV shows on the planet. It was also one of the most integrated shows that you can think of, right? They didn't have the tropes or rely on these stereotypes. So when you go into that space, they address race, they address uh, sexuality, they address patriarchy, they address all the big things and everybody watched it. How come a movie theater or a movie company can't do the same thing? They had to test it in the same way, only they had a much broader spectrum of people that they let watch it. Yeah, this is why I, lo this is why I love that movie Sound of Metal, which came out last year. Is like Riz Ahmed, he, they, they didn't bring up his race at all in the movie, at all. He was just a drummer who's losing his hearing. And he's mm -hmm. just a normal job, a normal dude. Well, I guess, you know, metal drummer's not necessarily a normal job. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate movies like that. Like, I, I think we need more movies where we're not being preached to. We're just seeing people doing normal lives. You know, I disagree. Yeah, I disagree. I think I think the, the thing about race, ethnicity, culture has to be addressed in almost every movie. It doesn't have to be the focus of the movie. But just like in Bridgerton's, we had to figure out why all these black people were here. Mm. You know what I mean? Like and why they had all these posts, because it's so fantastical. We can't say I don't see culture. What you're saying is you don't want to focus on it. And so for me, what I want people to do is say, look, and if you don't see color, then you blind. You guys see this history. You guys see this understanding. You have to know that uh, when you say certain things to me, I might take it different because although we're all Americans, we all have a, a different enculturation, right? And so what people expect me to do is default to my acculturation, the, the, the thing that's being forced on me and not my enculturation because it's not respected by the prevailing thing. We're seeing that a lot in the cinema. It's interesting because I, I kind of want to watch that, watch it now. Um, because uh, I know that's uh, that's been very popular, and I heard that some characters not coming back for season two. That's been like making some headlines. Uh, <laughs> I do think that the problem for me in terms of diversity in, in 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 film and media is not just about the casting of it, but it's about 
the stories that we're telling. I mean, I'll just cite an example on a project that I worked on, right? I, I worked on a project called The Right Stuff, which is about the space race of the 1960s, which focused on the astronauts. Not a lot of diversity there, all white men, right? Mm -hmm. Now, people may say, well, you know, uh, historically, uh, you can't really put diversity in there, right? Because there weren't any black characters. Well. Why do we have to tell that story again? <laughs> Why can't our resources be directed to tell stories about African-Americans and, and the stories that are un untold, stories that haven't been focused on? I mean, even if you think about the Tulsa massacre, right? That mm -hmm. has not been in media in a spotlight really until Watchmen kind of came out with it, right? That was, I think, the first time a lot of people heard about it, which was this kind of a crazy thing. This was a, such a huge event for African-American communities and everyone kind of knew about it except the white culture who kind of swept it underground. So to me, it's not necessarily just about making the cast diverse or including more people. It's more about, well, what stories are we telling? Mm -hmm. You know, how many times do we need to tell the same story about World War II? <laughs> I mean, how many times do we have to keep telling the stories of white people and then bring in the Asians and bring in the black people? To me, so it's not just about uh, including diversity, uh, diversity, but it's 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 about well, w w let's start telling stories that uh, we've hidden for a long time. I mean, that's that's to me that's the that's the focus. Can we bring it into a sexual narrative too? Let's bring it into the space. If you've ever, I I, pre, I don't know how many people are old enough to remember when you used to have porn stores where you rent videos like DVD porn. A, any type of minority sex or interaction is always considered niche. Right. If you went, it was the black section, the Asian section it is, but normal sexual behavior was was between white men and white women. And that was considered the norm. Everything else was niche. We're seeing the same thing in uh, in, in cinema. It's like if you're going to do something else like Star Trek, oh, the first kiss between an in, you know interracial kiss. And we're still talking about it to this day. And we're talking about, you know, this person who's white and this person's black having a sex scene. And we're talking about because minority brown sexuality is still should be still considered niche. And it's like we don't want to see that if all we want to see is normal sex. And when they say normal sex, what they mean, white man, white woman. And so pushing barriers really, especially around sexuality is important because we're playing on the taboos. We're pushing the taboos and that way almost everything is kinky if you look at it from that perspective. Again, to me, kink is any deviation from what you feel is normal sexual behavior, any deviation. Hmm. And so when I, when I take my, my clients and I have them fill out, I say, give me five things that you think is normal sexual behavior. Now, give me five things that you do that are not that. Hmm. They give me five things. I'm like, you're kinky <laughs> because you're outside of the norm. Now, give me five things that you fantasize about that are not something that you're already doing. Now we're getting really kinky. So now we're starting to go into spaces of really how I see myself, how I see partners, situations, segments. And you'll see that they're not really locked into any paradigm other than that which I hunger for the most. Mm. It can be Black, Asian, blah, 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 blah. Mm. And our movie making needs to come from that same space. Our depictions of sexuality have to too. Yeah, I mean, how has kink and taboo changed over the last 30 years with the advent of the internet? I don't think it's changed as much as it's become more accessible. 
um, because we're, when we're talking about Irving Claw and Betty Page, we're pushing some serious boundaries. I'm talking about, you know, serious bondage, serious suspension. They were doing all the same things that we're doing right now. Japan with uh, Sweet Edo was... Uh, uh, Sweet Ito was probably going around the early, late 1800s, tying women up, suspending them, and they didn't have really photos right there, so it's painted, right? Uh, Woodblock carvings. We're, we're, it's all, it was all there. It was all happening. We just didn't have access to it, hmm. right? Now I think what we're also seeing is the normalization of this behavior. And so we're saying, so you get people who already, um, people who are young people who already have safe words. 11, 12, 13, they know what a safe word is. They know what a negotiation is. They know how to have a consent conversation already because they are not going to be held back by the rigidity, the rigid social and religious standards that oppress, you know, their, their parents, their friends, their family, their culture. They're already going to it saying I'm pansexual. So for me, uh, the internet really just gave everyone access, and now we're still feeling about it, but we're starting to turn this this page about what kink is and what its role is in our social, psychological, and emotional development. Can you tell me a little bit about how you started teaching kink, like uh, teaching sex therapy? I yeah. Mean, like, yeah. Like, how did you even start? You know, I, I, like I said, I came up on uh, the stages in Hollywood, you know, and, and what people don't understand is that... Uh, when you say stages of Hollywood, what do you mean specifically? Uh, well, if you wanted a kink or a fetish thing done, there were certain groups, little clicks that you would pay to go do that thing. And I was a part of one. So if, mm. uh, you know, Jenna Torturers wanted bondage or something like that, they would call up my mentor, Sir Nick, and, and they would come in and we'd do stage shows. And people knew that we could work with the public because if we did something and hurt somebody, who's going to get sued, the band or the venue, right? And so we would come in and do these things. So we had to be very good at what we did. And then we started, uh, people started seeing us and wanting to emulate us. And so they started pulling us into porn movies, started doing us in TV shows, uh, radio shows and, and things like that. And so people across the country started seeing this and then across the world started seeing what we were doing on a larger scale and people want to do that. And so people would come to me and say, Hey, can you show me how to do a Florentine or can you show me how to do an overhead or can you show me how to do a behind the back or something like that? And I'd be like, yeah. And people were like, you really should teach. Right. And so I started teaching from that point, not knowing that was going to be like my life career. I didn't think that those days would end. You know what I mean? We were like celebrities back in the day. There was no club that we didn't have access to. You know, we could go up to any bouncer in Hollywood and they would open it up and say, oh, thank you, Mr. Black. Welcome to our club. Yeah. Right. Any club, you know, was open to us because sexuality is open to everyone. If people think that you're going to attract women or that you're going to get them laid, they open the door. Right. And so that's really what got us into that space. And then kink had become a trope a trope for, for people to try and perpetuate their own personal story so that they can get laid. Mm. Right. He's like, oh, they want to start walking around with leather pants and, and floggers on their hip. Right. Mm. Because it looked cool. And, and the girls were like, Oh, he's so kinky. But then you start seeing, you would see that guy and then see me in the club. And I got a little, little tummy and a, you know, I'm a little, a little older, a little long in the tooth. And I'm doing all the things that she wants in a different package. And so that also confronted people to deal with, do I want the experience or do I want to do the same thing that I've been doing? 
Do I still want to judge it on the exterior of this person, this pack, the outside package, or the experience that this person is capable of giving? You know, and so once we start going there and the paradigm started shifting, people were like, okay, you know what, let me humble myself and let me let me go to a class, let me learn a little bit more because people are wanting to have an experiential interaction as opposed to just someone hitting their body. Yeah, how has Buddhism influenced your work? Here's one for you. Um, how, if you abbreviated bo uh, Buddhism, what would it be? Uh, BDSM. BDSM. Buddhism, <laughs> <laughs> there we go. I'm, I'm thinking like bud, like butt, but. <laughs> Right. It's BDSM, you know what I mean? And so for me, uh, Buddhism is in, in BDSM are, are really important because one is it, it's about doing or being. That's the immortal question that happens in Buddhism. Right. You don't do meditation. You sit down and you allow yourself to go into a state just like you don't do kink. You allow yourself to be in that space. Hmm. Right. And when you go into a place and not forcing it. Right. That Wu way, you know, what I mean, when you don't allow yourself and you just like hit my body, hit my butt, do this, turn my body on. It's like you're not trying to have an experience. I'm trying to be with you. I'm trying to connect to you deeply. And these are just the instruments. They're going to help me do that. Just like I pick up a cell phone and it helps me connect with you. Right. I'm picking up this flogger, this paddle to help me connect with you right so it's about being together being in this moment going through this experience together and coming out this other side changed transformed right and to me buddhism is very much the same thing so it's just a process of transformation and a process of understanding yourself on a deeper more fundamental level mm. so i had a i had a sorry i had a specific question what is Florentine? <laughs> <laughs> All right, right. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> Ray, what, what are we I, love, I like the name of it, so I want to know. <laughs> Florentine is just a way you throw floggers where you use both hands, and it's kind of like this pretty uh, way of doing it. Oh. And they, you know, and it's giving a uh, a nice pattern to what it is that you're doing. What you know. And what is a I mean, flogger? I mean, yeah. <laughs> is it is it that kind of like uh, kind of wand thing with like the 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 straps at the you know? Moon, I know I'm I know I'm getting you for your birthday. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay, yeah, I've seen those. Well, that's yeah, a flogger, yeah. Yeah, right? Okay. And, and Florentine is a, a a higher level thing. What but what again? What people don't understand is imagine imagine this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, a drum. A drum is just. A hard block of wood, a hard hollow block of wood with a piece of skin pulled across it. When you hit it, a vibration goes to the other side and usually has a corresponding sound. Mm -hmm. Your chest, your back is just ribs, hard like wood, hollow on the inside with skin pulled across it. When you hit it, a vibration goes through it and usually corresponds to a sound. Right? When you take this thing. It's just another way to, to produce that same thing. And now what I'm trying to do is get a certain level of speed, a certain rhythm, have a certain interaction so that it produces the type of sound 
that I'm looking for. So it resonates with both the instrument and the person playing it, and we become one in that space. In the same way a drummer drops into this deep kind of state, almost like a, a liminal space, right, where his hands are just going, just doing his thing, flogging is very much the same thing. Right. And that person drops into a space. You'll also see this if you've ever seen someone put a baby over their shoulder and you pat their back rhythmically. And maybe that child's not asleep, but they're subdued and they're lulled into a space where they've let go of their resistance. They have no need to cry. They have no need to resist. They just kind of go into that space. This produces the same thing when you think about it from that perspective. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? So yeah. for me, there's multiple levels of doing it. I could just slash you like the you know passion of the Christ, right? I can hack at you, you know, or whatever. But if you're using it as an instrument of transformation, it becomes something very, very different. So, what advice would you have for for anyone who wants to you know start dip their toe into into kink? Where, where would when, where would one start? You should start at OrpheusBlack.com. And <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the best place to start is whether, ask yourself, is this something you want to do or is it something, is it something, uh, some facet of yourself, is it who you are? Right. And then go from there because it's okay to just want to tie your wife up today and then she tie you up tomorrow. And it's just a, a thing about bodies or whatever. That's okay. Right. But there's a lot of people who this is who they are, hmm. you know, and, and doing it the right way, approaching it the right way, helping to do the work that you need to do on yourself um, before you start playing is essential. Right. Mm. Because there's a lot of people who have a lot of baggage. They have a lot of trauma and they're trying to start this new thing. And all they're doing is allowing those things to destroy their future. Mm. Right. So if you're if you just want to just tie up somebody and do some play and it's nothing more than that, that's great. Mm. But if this is a lifestyle choice, if this is something with, again, that's congruent with who you are, then you need to take some time to really step into this place of excellence. Do the work before you go out and play. That's what they used to tell me when I was a kid. You know, you got to do your work before you go out and play at recess, right? You have to do your work before you go out and play in kink because people get hurt doing this, not only physically, emotionally. And if you're already coming in with wounds, whether they're physical or emotional, all it's going to do is, is exacerbate the thing that you were uh, not healing from before. So do a little work on yourself first. And, you know, and honestly, that's one of the reasons why we are here. Um, I and my partners are here is to help people get to the healed place so that they can take the next step into their life's journey. So, I mean, uh, along with that, can you talk a little bit about, you know, because you were talking before about this idea that, you know, you guys were talking about consent a long, you know, long ago, you know, when you were young and, you know, especially nowadays, you know, consent is a very uh, important thing that we're trying to address as a society. I mean, can you talk a little bit about the idea of consent in terms of how you learned even the idea of it when you were young and, you know, any sort of advice you might have for people uh, nowadays in terms of how to how to talk about it? Let, let me let me put this disclaimer on it. And I mean, let me be very honest, you know. I am not the best person to talk about consent. 
You know what I mean? Because I came up in the 70s. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, you know, I was born in 74. I came through the 80s. These were not the best consent years. Right. And we had a very under uh, uh, an understanding of what male female dynamics were as men. But now we're starting to hear some of the conversations about here's what you didn't understand about uh, our experiences. And here's what you didn't make room for. And we understand that you didn't know, but it still hurt. Right. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I think I know now that I didn't know before is that. In some cases, people are asking you not for consent, but a container, a safe space where they can explore who they are, right? Hmm. So it's more than just saying, yes, they're saying, I need to be able to feel safe with you. I need you to have some detachment for this thing so you can take responsibility for us both, right? Not only your actions uh, and what you will and will not let yourself do, but even some of my actions, which you would... I can do and what I can't do, right? So when we and King talk about having a safe word, right? And I'll just give you an idea. It's a word that you say to help the other person know what to do when you feel triggered or upset or uncomfortable, right? So I'll give an example. Will one of you do a consent conversation? I mean, a, a safe word conversation with me? Maybe Moon? Yeah, okay. Okay, so I'll ask you, what's your safe word? Uh, cacao. Okay, cacao. What do you want me to do when you say cacao? Um, stop what you're doing, whatever it is. Is there any way that I can comfort you in that moment? Is there any verbiage that I can say or make you feel more comfortable, make you feel more home, uh, make you feel more welcome? Make you, is there any care or things I can do specifically to make you feel more cared for? Uh, ask me how I am, like how I'm feeling and how I am. Like, are you okay? Are you feeling okay? Or yeah, what are you feeling? I guess. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so then I would, I would say, okay, so what I'm hearing is you want me to say, are you okay? Are you feeling okay? Are you all right? Right. And then I would stop and say, I would take the person's hands and say, uh, when you say red, I'm going to let go of your hands and I'm going to ask you a question. And then we demonstrate it. I prove to you that I know how to respond to your words. I can manage my expectations, manage my energies, manage my compulsions and do that and actually hold the space for you. We just created a container. Hmm. Okay. A safe space for that person to be when they're in a triggered or altered space. So sometimes it's not just about saying yes, it's about performing safety. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's... Uh... That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, I already feel safe with you. <laughs> no, because it's it's like it's it's like as soon as as soon as I say this thing, you know exactly what to do to uh, make me feel better. So I, it's like a, it's almost like a, an unsaid routine that we already established from the get go. Uh, I, I think circling back on something that you had said that triggered a. a um, so something that's been going around in, in my own brain is, is when you start talking about privilege in this space and, and power dynamics that, you know, there, there, there are times when you come in, into the presence of a really powerful person and you just want to please them, even if it makes you feel unsafe. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I guess my, my question is like, how, how do you handle, how, how does one, not you in particular, but how does one handle those situations 
still be able to express their desires, seek to have their desires met, while at the same time not being aware of power discrepancies that could could um, uh, make those conversations tricky. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's a great one. Thank you. And and I want to again, you know, put that caveat that I am not the best person to have that conversation with because I'm not on the cutting edge of it. I only know how to do what I know how to do. Sure. And with the information I have at this moment. So that being said, um, a flight attendant actually gave me this information on a, a flight uh, when I told her what I do. And she said, I have to, I try to make all my partners aware that I'm 100% responsible for my 50%. You're 100% responsible for your 50%, right? And with this, if we're both being honest, we're both being in the moment, we're both speaking our truths, we're both working from a place of desire, then we should be taken care of. In the event that it's not, we create a protocol to try and expedite healing. That's really it. I can't do anything more than that. But this is also where, where it goes wrong to me is where shame comes in, a sense of worthlessness comes in, because all those impede you from saying, well, I don't want you to do anything extra. Or when I say safe word, just, you know, just stop and just whatever. And, you know, they don't want to talk about how to care for them. They don't want to be vulnerable with you in that space. A person would rather show you their body than show you their heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And so to me, this is where the homework needs to happen. Let's talk about what, uh, one of the things I'll ask a person, is there any reason that you feel that you couldn't say no to me? Right now, shame could keep them from saying it. You know, uh, the power dynamic could keep them from saying it, but I can only do my 50 percent. Mm hmm. You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I can yeah. only be responsible for the parts that I'm responsible for. Yeah. I can't know everything. I'm not a genie, right? And it might sound like a cop-out to some people. And and I don't know if it is or is not. I can't say what it is. If, if you want a better conversation, there's lots of people who do it better than me. But for me, I can only be responsible for my 50%. If you say your safe word and you tell me how to take care of you, I'll do it to the best of my ability. That's all I can do, Right. And when I say my safe word, because I, I try and pioneer this with dominance, if you're the person in power, have a safe word too. Because I've been triggered in spaces. I've experienced mental, emotional, psychological uh, issues in the moment of the scene. And because of my indoctrination and in masculinity and pride and ego, right, I wasn't able to say, oh, maybe I should stop because it, it's harming me. Right. So I'm expecting them to also hold the container for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I feel like that's that was a lot. You know, there was I had some experiences like that for me. Where I was diving into I dipped my toes into the, the, you know, the kink world a little bit. And I just remember being in the play spaces where I'm like, I don't feel comfortable at all. And, but I felt the need sort of as I'm, I'm a man, I'm supposed to be virile and do all the da, da, and I just I walked away feeling just so gross and disconnected and inauthentic and and I I, I had the wherewithal to know that, okay that was my own shit that I was dealing with and I need to go into my shadow and deal with some of this stuff especially mm -hmm. if I'm especially if I'm going to go into a space where 
it's you're moving from from you know basic math into algebra all of a sudden you know you have to you're working with one partner that's one thing but when you're working with three or four it's like everyone's got their own thing that they're dealing with and if you're not fully grounded and worked through and you're still and you're always working through that stuff but i i you know that's i was i'm glad that you said that because even it's to be on that side as as the man, you know, we don't really talk about the shame that we're supposed to have, or the shame that's allowed, or like what we what's okay. You know, we're just like we're we're men. We like to fuck. You know, mm-hmm. put it anywhere, anytime. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot there's a lot of that going on. A lot of dudes out there that do that, but not. There's also that emotional side, and we have our own stuff. And yeah, yeah it's and, complex. And, and, man. And, it's also the wrong you're like i why is this coming up for me right now like this is a horrible time for me to be experiencing this right now like i'm supposed to be the man i'm supposed to be handling this there you know there's two or three girls in the bed and i'm about to do this and i'm feeling emotional it's like geez let me you know but if i if i think about it and i can just use my safe word and just try and check out for a minute they hold the space leave come back maybe i can come back renewed I can come back fresh in a space where I'm ready to handle this. But for me, most people don't talk about that because the pride gets in the way, right? It's, it's just really what it is. Masculinity is really a poison to the idea of dominance. How so? Because we have to remember that masculinity is a barometer by which uh, society measures what's valuable in its male-bodied population, right? So I'm living up to mm-hmm. someone else's expectation uh, that I didn't sign up for. Right. And so when you're in a warlike country or a warlike culture, what they do is virility. Right. Uh, When it all costs aggression, these things don't make for good bedfellows. Right. It doesn't make for a good intimate thing when that's the thing that you're going into. What you mean? Raping and pillaging is not intimate. Right. (laughs) You see what I'm saying? So. How about we just opt out and I just start measuring, using masculinity to measure what I feel is valuable from a father figure, from being a, for being a brother, for being a friend, for being, what, are my, what is my masculine criteria for this? What is my lover archetype and what am I measuring on that barometer? I don't have to measure up to some other one else's expectation because I'll fail every time. I want to live up to my expectations because I'll hit it right off the bat as soon as I start measuring. What about, let's talk, you know, maybe deviate a little bit, not deviate, but expand on gender and, and sex. Uh-oh. You know, I, I just mean, I, I, well, what I'm thinking about, like, as far as like masculinity, when you, when you really try to sit into this like stereotypical societal expectation of masculinity, you, you, get, you get afraid of the other in that way versus being a person that that can hold space for all types of people all genders well that, i mean there's we the origins of of masculinity are also you you, you find the origins of xenophobia right and that's fear of the other you know what i'm saying but in, in the terms of masculinity the fear is the the fear of your other self your sacred feminine right we fear the appearance of any sensitive nature at all so we're, it's an internal xenophobia that says anything that looks feminine looks sensitive looks emotional you need to fear it right mm. and if you allow it to manifest there's consequences and repercussions for being a sensitive male 
right? And so masculinity also becomes a survival mechanism because if you don't perform masculinity correctly, we will hurt you. And so it's not only reinforced in our culture, reinforced in our indoctrination, reinforced through our families, it's also a survival mechanism. Mm, yeah. Right? So for me, it's very important to remember I do not have to measure up. I'm not a 13-year-old going to get pushed in the, in the gym anymore. Am I going to be beat up? Am I going to get bullied for being me? My wife loves me for being me. If she really loves me, the more me I reveal, the more love I should get. Hmm. Right? Yeah. And that should be from friends and children and wives and whatever have you. You know what I mean? So that, to me, is where we're going into this space. Yeah, I, I'm... Masculinity is something I've always struggled with because I'm I've never been I've never been a big beefy dude. I I can't pack muscle on no matter how much I I have to roid up to like probably even have have a, an inch of muscle grow. It's and I was always the kid terrorized on and beat up and bullied. Um, you know, my sister used to think I was gay. I was such a late bloomer, and mm-hmm. and a lot of the work I'm doing now is trying to sit with and accept the the whole me the whole me the masculine side that i do have that is there and also the feminine side that you know and the emotional side that is there as well not have it be a um it's not intention there i i just am it just is and it's like a day it's a daily practice like okay i'm i'm feeling emotional right now all right that's fine that's fine there's nothing wrong with that sit with that Today I'm feeling really like, you know, I, I want to do my martial art. I want to kick someone in the face, you know, <laughs> and that's okay too, right. you know, within within the right confines. So that's a lot of the work that I'm doing. So thank you for for bringing that up because that's something that's near and dear to me to be like, for me I never want to push a version of masculinity that's only this container that's just, you know, beefy man for for lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah. And, and as a beefy man, I got to say that <laughs> it comes there's some downsides to it. You know, what I mean, like like, you know, one of the things that, that I always have to remember if I'm doing a, a session with a client uh, where we're actually doing a scene hands on, it's like I have to make sure I don't block the door. Right. I have to make sure I don't raise my voice. I have to make sure that I don't lawyer over them. And if I get this reminder that, oh, shit, this is a black man about to hit me, I have to learn how to read body language really well and step back because fear creeps over them. And that's where the stereotypes of who black men have been portrayed to be come out. Or you're not only a big black, you know, a big man, you're a big black man. Right. And you're standing between me and the door and I'm a little triggered in this space. And all that happens and no words come out. Hmm. Right. So it's the kind of the inverse of what you're talking about. People don't want to get close to me and talk to me because on the outside, they're like, you look freaking, you know, like you're going to do something like you can kick some ass. It's like I probably could, but I'd love to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm I'm big and I'm silly and I love to play and I tickle and, and, and me and the girl, they chase me all over the house because I've done something. I love being all of me. But at one point in time, I was so wrapped up in it that I was like, on your knees, you can't, you have to ask for everything and what pass, you know, discipline. And, but it was too hard to keep it up hmm. because that was only one facet of me. But I also realized that I've been doing that throughout my life with masculinity. I didn't know how to put it down, but it was exhausting me. 
You know, what I mean, I just, I just, I just want to put it down just for a little bit and just in, in just in this space and just in this way. And I'm like, okay, just this time, I'll allow myself to, to cry or to have an emotional breakdown or this or whatever it is, but just this time, it was incremental. But as I learned how to kind of put that down, I started looking at uh, Suzuki um, and Suzuki would talk about the isness of a thing. What is the quintessence of this thing? What is the quintessence of who you are? What is the isness of you? Right? Mm. And I was like, I have no fucking idea. I have no idea what the what the if somebody said this is that thing, this is the the thing that you are, the if you had to say one tagline about who you were, sum it up in one moment, I have no idea. Because I've been big man, big guy, big black man for so long. I've been wearing that label that I never thought about anything past that. Right. Mm-hmm. Masculinity kind of works like Heidegger's hammer, uh, where Heidegger kind of postulated this idea that you give a baby a hammer. He thinks he knows what to do with it. You give someone else a hammer. You, it's one of the few things that you can have and not need an instruction manual for. Mm-hmm. Right. And so all I did with masculinity is hammer, 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 hammer. And sometimes when it got difficult, difficult, hammer harder. But Heidegger also postulated that you don't really examine what that tool is until it's broken. Hmm. It's got to not work for you. It's got to fail you in some way before you start questioning, do I need this? Do I need all of it? Do I need this now? Are there other options? So for me, when I'm coaching, I want to try and give people all the options. Let's just break this hammer and let's see how you deal with other things as a male body leader in your relationship or the top of the hierarchy, a person who happens to have a penis, Hmm. right? What are all the options in making love? Hmm. What are all the options when we open, open the door completely? And then people start learning more about themselves because they relied on the hammer so much. So just to kind of just, that's where I come from when it comes to masculinity. That's great. Let's, um, we're starting to wrap up. Well, I just have one more question. Yeah, I got one more question too. You go, Moon. Um, I mean, I guess this is to both of you guys because I know, uh, Matt, you've been exploring the idea of masculinity through your men's group. Um, You know, how would you, you know, how would you guys both define the idea of masculinity? Because to a certain certain extent, I I almost want to not even say that being masculine that some, somehow being masculine is contrary to being emotional. You know what I mean? I don't want to define masculinity by this uh, kind of, you know, what you guys are talking about in terms of being a beefy man and unemotional and and uh, this uh, strong man, you know? So how would you guys like to define the idea of masculinity or would you even want to? Like, do we even need to define the idea of masculinity? I'm going to say masculinity, like money, only holds value for those that believe in it. Mm. Some people need to believe in it. Some people need to believe that that dollar is attached to gold bullion somewhere in the Adirondacks, right? Some people understand it's just a trope to kind of keep our, our, our thing going, right? Same thing with masculinity. Some people need to believe in it. Mm. They've invested so deeply in it that getting them out of it would be more harmful than just leaving them in it. And so for me... I, when I realized that masculinity was a belief, 
And because I believe it's part of my own personal myth, because I believe it. And the story I tell myself about masculinity is really helping me integrate that personal myth. Then I realized I need to start asking myself, what do I believe in? Dude, what, why do I need this? Like, why just being me, all of me should be enough. And if it asks me to be anything other than that, then I don't want to do it. I don't want to be locked into one facet of my my being anymore. And so I'm the one that I'm one of those people that opt out and say, hey, let's do Bitcoin, because at least I know it's because I believe in it. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I, mean? Like, I, I know how that works. You know what I mean? So let's switch. Just just leave it. Leave it to die. Right. Or leave it as something I can draw on if I need. Mm, right. So you're you're saying you choose not to believe it because you don't you don't find value in it. Yeah. I'll find value in it, and, and most of the time, I don't need it. Matt, what do you think? Um, well, I, I'm, I'm, I just, just so you, you know, Orpheus, I started the uh, John Wineland program and been reading some David Data. I'm not sure if you're familiar with their work. I've heard of um, it. Yeah, I'm at the very beginning of it, so I can't really, like, I'm exploring, I'm learning. So I, it's anything that I say is just me parroting what I've been learning. <laughs> and okay. uh, so, in, in full disclaimer, so I'm not whole, I'm not sitting in the seat of authority by any means. I'm like, I, I don't know. Um, but the way I the way I, it's being sort of presented to me is not a gendered thing. It's not masculinity is women. I mean, man, men and femininity is women. It's it's two poles, two energies that you can that you can summon within your own body, and a yin yang kind of thing. And masculinity masculinity is summed up as the energy of structure. And femininity is the energy of flow, and, and um, usually those are assigned to certain like emotions and provider, whatever. Um, so I don't know. That's that's that is what these programs are are teaching, and they're doing a lot of uh, yogic practices to channel these different energies within 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 us. You know, so we do feminine practices and we do masculine practices, um, and there's a lot of breath of fire and, and uh, Qigong type type practices that we're doing. And it is interesting to sit within these spaces and go, okay, I just did this feminine practice and I've, I'm really in touch with my emotions right now. I see the masculine practice and I just feel like I can hold the world on my shoulders for 10 hours and, and be, be a stability for, for that. And that's as much as I can talk about it right now. Hey, Mr. Moon. Yeah. Quick question. It's gonna sound a little weird, but just answer the question. When you go to sleep, do you know the sun's going to come up in the morning? Yes. Do you know when you go to bed, the sun's going to set tomorrow uh, that night? Yeah. Do you also know that the sun doesn't rise and fall? It actually, the earth is what turns? Yes. But see, you see how we can have a belief? Because it's essential to a, a part of what we think is our existence. We need to wake up when the sun comes up. We have to believe that it comes up and that we wake with it. And that as it sets, we go down mm -hmm. into this resting space, right? Mm -hmm. Even mm -hmm. though you know the truth, that's indoctrination. That's mm -hmm. masculinity. Even though you know it's bullshit, mm -hmm. you still buy in. The buy-in is what allows us to monetize it, to play right. with it, to have it as a subject, and we treat it like a real, real thing in the world because right. we so bought into it. Right. The question right. is, is, do you want to continue to buy into it? If right. you do, then please go to things that will help you manage your belief in this thing and how it manifests through your body. Right. If you don't, then just let it go. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, right. and, and you will develop another way of being 
right? Mm-hmm. They exist in the world. No, I mean that's interesting because it, that's it's it's to come all all the way around circle full circle. I I think what you're talking about is pretty much what religion is, right? It's 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 like it's a narrative that. It, let's just say, yeah, it's it's, it's it's bullshit. It's a narrative. It's a it's a myth. It's a mythology. It's a story, and and I guess to a certain extent, you know, I'm in that place where I use it. You know, I don't. I'm not a Christian anymore, but I still use the mythology. You know, like yeah. we still pray before we start a, a meal. I don't pray to God. You know, but mm-hmm. we do have a moment of prayer of thankfulness because I believe in the practice of it. You know, I believe in certain practices of the narrative. You know, um, and it's uh, it's to a certain extent knowing that it's bullshit helps me figure out a better way to manage it. You know, mm-hmm. the better way to um, buy into it and practice it. You know, so that's, that's exactly yeah. it. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. that's exactly what I'm talking about. So, yeah. but there's also people who bought are so invested in it that they can't separate themselves from it. The right. idea of letting it go would be like walking away from a billion dollar investment. It's like I got to make this work, even when right. crisis happens, even though it's harming you, even though it's hurting you, even though you're caught up in the bullshit. You're so invested in it, and it's harming you, and you can't let it go. That can be masculinity for many people. Hmm. Right. And so they're so bought into the system that they need to have someone preach to them. They need to have someone sit down with them. They need to have. And that's great. I'm not saying it's wrong if you're so invested. Mm -hmm. But if you're like me at eight, nine years old, say, you know, this isn't for me. I can walk away. I just don't believe in that thing right now. Then it's okay. That's okay too. I think I think the like the problem I have with with at least my I'll just say my form of Christianity that I was raised with because one of the things I never want to do is I never want to criticize anyone's spiritual beliefs if it if it however it manifests in, in their life I don't know but for me it, it was a, a a tool that kept me from actually examining who I really was you know I want I I took this narrative from from these people in my life and put it on like a suit. It was like a suit that didn't fit right, but mm-hmm. I wanted to please them. So I said all the things I needed to say. I did all the things I needed to do. And never once did I have someone say, hey, does this really resonate with you? Mm-hmm. It, it, do you feel authentic inside? It, it, it was, you, got, you, you follow these steps, you do these things, Jesus is going to come and, and make you happy and it's going to bring the woman of your dreams and you have this amazing sex life. But if you, if you have sex beforehand, you know, you're going to ruin all that. You're going to ruin it. You might even go to hell. Yeah. That is, that is uh, toxic. Yeah. Again, you, when, when you look at it, when you look at it, I, I'll tell you, I'll sum up every, every freaking uh, religion, especially, and, and I find this in Buddhism as well, which is not a, a religion but practice, but there's a serious hypocrisy there. On one way, everybody's like, here's how you avoid suffering. Whether it's going to hell, whether it's karma, whether it's purgatory, it's all about how you avoid suffering, right? For me, the hypocrisy is, is void, avoidance is one of the poisons. How can you say avoidance is one of the things and that I should avoid suffering? Isn't it, isn't it catch 22? I'm like, okay, I realize that that's a thing. Okay. Is it harming me? Not at the moment. 
right? But for me, life and existence, there's a certain amount of suffering. There's a certain amount of pain. There's a certain amount of anxiety. And avoiding it leads to more pain than just going through it. So when you start using Christianity, when you start using Islam, when you start using Hinduism, when you start using Buddhism as a method of helping you go through those tough spots, I think it's a much more valuable process, hmm. right? When it's a survival method, right? For me getting through this time. And if I hit the lucky spot and I go there and, and I avoid the, the, the fiery, whatever thing is, great. But really it's more helpful for me as an, as an instruction manual to, to help me get through the tough times, hmm. right? That to me is what Buddhism is about. And um, for, as, as a person who has a, cho- a child who's a devout Christian, we talk about Christianity all the time. I'm always, I'm always open to have a conversation. Just because I'm a Buddhist doesn't mean I'm an atheist, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm just a guy who has a daily practice. And, but I do not avoid anything. I don't try to avoid suffering because that scares me. When I try to do that, I wind up in things that I don't want to be in, like churches, trying to avoid suffering, listening to people that I don't believe, trying to avoid suffering. I just learn how to suffer, feel it, go through it, let it go. It's just like a wave. If you let it wash over you, eventually it'll recede on its own. I can't do anything to expedite that process. Hmm. And my practice is just something to help me go through that. One last question. And uh, this is, uh, I'm basically trying to find some sort of gimmicky thing to end, end all our podcasts with. You know, some, one thing that I could ask every single person. Um, so let's see how this works. If I could snap my fingers right now and the next thing you said went viral, every single social media platform had this everywhere. What message would you want to portray to the world? Belong to yourself. Self-ownership is the most important thing because I can't give myself to someone if I don't own me. I can't give myself to a company, a business, an ideology if I don't belong to me. So that would be it. In what ways don't we belong to ourselves? When you think that your church is more important than you, when you think that uh, you're worth less than someone else, when you're still trying to take care of your body and separating yourself from who you are, it's really important to just say, it's okay to be me. It's okay to own this, all the good, all the bad, to own it, to belong to me. So I can go into a place of self-acceptance. And then I can say, when someone opens their arms and asks for me, I can hand myself to them. Whether it's a, a religion, a faith, a belief, a way of being, you can give yourself 100%, hold nothing back regret nothing, be a part of everything simultaneously. Hmm. Great words. Thank you so much. Thank you. Orpheus, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that so much. Yeah, thank Thank you for this conversation. This is great. The great podcast. I still got to plug my wares though, man. You got to give me... Wait, we got one more question. We got one more question. So, Orpheus, you got got a platform now. Where can people find you? What, What do you want them to know? What are you selling? What are you, what are you offering? Okay. Basically, you can go find me at orpheusblack.com. That's O-R-P-H-E-U-S 
B-L-A-C-K.com. You'll see all the packages that you have to work with me or in group settings. Uh, I'm going to give a discount to who anybody who watches this podcast and goes in and we'll put it as Matt B. And you'll get $100 off your, uh, your course. And um, we're looking forward to you. You can also find my book, The Enzo, A Philosophy of Submission on Amazon.com with more books coming soon. Nice. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. And hopefully we can have you back on in the future when we are far more refined. But until then, we are so blessed to have you on. Thank you so much. Thank you thank so you. much. appreciate you having me. Thank you, Mr. Moon. Yeah, very nice to meet you, Mr. Black. <laughs> <laughs>